Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. We're going to continue on with the sermon series we started last week. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. If you would, read along with me, starting verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. You would pray with me this morning, dear Heavenly Father, Lord. God, we thank you. I thank you for this passage, Lord. I thank you for revealing truth that we wouldn't know otherwise, that there is a whole spiritual realm, Lord, outside of us that is real that we can't see. Lord, I pray that we, we hear this passage this morning, the text that we're going to cover, and, and feel the weight of this reality, Lord, this war that is raging outside of us, Lord. God, help us to understand who is our enemy and what his schemes are, Lord. Help us to understand and and to take seriously, to be sober-minded, Lord, about the reality that we need to put on the armor of God to withstand, to stand firm against Satan and his demons, Lord. Be with us this morning as we cover this heavy reality. Help us as a church, as individuals within this church, as a church as a whole, to stand firm with the armor of God. In your son's name, amen. We're starting again, I I said, uh, a sermon series on the armor of God and really on spiritual warfare. Last week I presented four questions on the passage I just read. Four questions, very simply, what, how, why, and who? What, how, why, and who? We answered three of those questions last week. What, how, and why? What? Be strong in the Lord. That's the overarching command in this whole entire passage. We are commanded as Christians... To be strong in the Lord. How? How are we to be strong in the Lord? Very simply, by putting on the whole armor of God. And why? Why should we put on the whole armor of God? Why should we be strong in the Lord? To take a stand. To stand firm. Christianity, I said last week, is a war. Christianity is war. It's a war on the flesh. It's a war on lust. It's a war on temptation. It's a war against sin. It's war against the enemy. Today I want to answer this last question, is who? Who is our enemy? And there's three parts of this sermon today that we're going to be going through. The first part, I want to answer two questions. And two questions are, who is our enemy and who, or or what are his schemes? Who is our enemy and what are his schemes? The second part of this sermon, I want to give two examples of battles against our enemy, against Satan. The first battle is a battle without the armor of God, and the second battle is a battle with the armor of God. And the third part of the sermon is a review. I want to review the Christian's war strategy. So let's start right off the bat. Who is our enemy? Look at verse 11. It's very clear. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes 
of the devil. The devil is our enemy. Verse 12, for we do not wrestle, and that word wrestle is like this idea of hand-to-hand combat, that, that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. In other words, Satan is our enemy, not people. People are not our enemy. They're our mission field. And I know as we get to this election, as, as the time that we're in right now as a, as a country, it may seem like people are our enemies, but they're not. There are many people in our country and outside of our country that are deceived by our enemy. They're our mission field. Our enemy is the devil. So who is the devil? I think most of us know a lot about the devil. He's a created being. God created him. He's an angel, but he's a fallen angel. In fact, he's the leader of all the fallen angels. He is spiritual, meaning he's not physical. He is powerful, and he is evil. In the Old Testament, he's a serpent in the garden. The New Testament makes that very clear that the serpent was Satan. He's the attacker or the afflictor of Job. In the New Testament, he's real. He's our enemy, and he hates you. I just want you to think about this. Every New Testament author at some point refers to the devil, makes a reference to the devil. 1 Peter 5.8 says this, Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. To really understand the character of the devil, I think the best way of doing that is actually looking at the different titles that the Bible, different titles and names that the Bible gives the devil. He's called the accuser. Revelations 12.10, he's called the adversary. It's 18 times in the New Testament that term is used for him in 1 Peter 5.8. He's called the angel of the bottomless pit. Revelation 9, 11. He's called the devil 38 times, especially in the New Testament, which means slanderer. Reference to that. He's called the dragon. Isaiah 27, verse 1. Revelation 12, verse 3. He's called the enemy. Luke 10, 19. He's just called the evil one. He's called the father of lies, John 8, 44. The God of this world, this evil world system, 2 Corinthians 4, 4. He's the king over the demons, Revelations 9, 11. He's the liar. That's just his name. The liar. He's a lying spirit. In 1 Kings 22, he's a murderer. In John 8, 44, he's the prince of the demons, Mark 3, 20, 20, or 22, he's the prince of the power of the air. Ephesians 2, 2, it just means his, his presence, his, his system, the world system just feel, fills the air. He's not omnipresent, he's not everywhere, but his work is in this world. He's a roaring lion. First Peter 5, 8, he's the ruler of this world. John 12, 31. Satan, which means adversary or enemy. He's the serpent. He's the tempter. Satan is real. He hates you. And he's powerful. That's why we need to put on the whole armor of God. Again, look at Ephesians 6, verse 11. It says this, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Our enemy is the devil and his army of demons. 
the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness, the spiritual forces of evil. Scripture here lists at least four categories of demons, and we see similar lists like this throughout Scripture, but the Bible doesn't really tell us much about it. It doesn't give us a bunch of information about demons and how they work. It reveals two things for sure. They are real, and they are well-organized and structured. Here's some of the titles and names to understand what demons are. In the Old Testament, they're called demons or evil or hate harmful spirits, Judges 9, 23. Lying spirits, 2 Chronicles 18, 22. Spirit of uncleanness, unclean, Zechariah 13, 2. Destroying angels, Psalms 78, 48, 9. In the New Testament, again, they're called demons. They're called deceitful spirits. I hope you're seeing a theme, liars, deceitful spirits, the father of lies. Deceitful spirits, Matthew 12, 45. Evil spirits, Acts 19, 12. Locusts, just like locusts that destroy. Revelation 9, 3. Spirit of divination, Acts 16, 16. Unclean spirits, 23 different times are called unclean spirits. Unclean just means unholy. Unholy spirits. That's our enemy, Satan and his army of demons who are powerful, well-structured, smart, and evil. There's one more thing before we go past this question and answer the question, what, what is the devil's schemes about our enemy? One more title, one, one title that... That, that Satan would like you to think of. He would like you to use this title, and that is he disguises himself as an angel of light. That's how he, he wants you to see him. An angel of light, not of darkness. He disguises himself as an angel of righteousness. He's not. But he wants you to think he's telling you the truth when he's lying. Second Corinthians eleven thirteen says this, for such men are false... Apostles, deceitful workmen, uh, di um, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it's no surprise if his servants, right, these liars, these false teachers, these men that are pretending to be apostles that aren't, also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond with their deeds. Look at verse 14 again. It should be on the board. Satan disguises himself as an angel of light to deceive us. He pretends he's on our team. He pretends he cares about you. He pretends that his ways are righteous. He, he pretends that he is offering you truth, but it's a lie. In fact, he is a liar. He's the father of lies. Which leads to the second point. What is our enemy's schemes, right? What is his game plan when he, when he comes and attacks? Look at verse 11 again. It says this, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Well, what are the schemes of the devil? What's the first thing that you think of when you hear spiritual warfare? Just think in your mind what it is. You know, what's funny is most people I talk to when they hear spiritual warfare, the first thing they think of is demon possession. Or when someone talks about demon possession, the first thing they say is spiritual warfare. 
Most people that I have found, and this is not a scientific thing, this is just experience of, of people I've talked to. Most people, when they say spiritual warfare, think of spiritual warfare, they think of demon possession or casting out demons or confronting demons. Just as a side note, if that's why you're excited about Ephesians 6, I'm sorry to disappoint you. I'm not going to be spending much time on demon possession. And here's why. There's nothing about demon possession in Ephesians 6. It's funny, as people talk about demon, demon possession, and I'll talk with them, and they're like, what about Ephesians 6? I'm like, it's not in there. I mean, think about that. The greatest passage on spiritual warfare, there's nothing on demon possession. Nowhere in Ephesians 6. In fact, nowhere in, in Ephesians. In fact, nowhere in any of the epistles at all. We only f- find stories about him in the Gospels and in Acts. There's no how to cast out demons anywhere in Scripture. There's no how to send demons away in the epistles. In fact, this is important to realize, there is not one record of a demon being cast out of a Christian anywhere in Scripture. There's non-Christians, but non-Christians, all non-Christians, are under the power of Satan. Their father is Satan. Instead, when it comes to spiritual warfare, we're called to put on the whole armor of God, which is seek truth, seek righteousness, have faith, proclaim the gospel, rest in our salvation, wield the, 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 the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. All the armor in, in this passage has to do with sanctification, the means of grace. Christ's likeness and righteousness, the purification of the soul, obedience and trust. Listen, spiritual warfare is more about trusting God and obedience than anything else. Listen, when you are tempted to sin, you are in spiritual warfare. Look at verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Where are the schemes of the devil? Schemes in Greek is the word methodeos, which is, is, we get the English word from, method from. Method. The methods of the, the devil. The Greek word, though, has more of a negative connotation. So I think the schemes, the schemes of the devil, which makes it sound a little bit more deceptive, is a good translation. In 2 Corinthians 2.11, it says this, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan. For we are not ignorant of his designs. That's the ESV. I really like the NET's translation on this. It says this, so that we may not be exploited by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. The word designs or schemes in 2 Corinthians 2.11 is a different word. It means, it's uh, the Greek word naema, which means the content of our thinking and reasoning. Satan's schemes is to attack the mind. He attacks our thinking and reasoning. He attacks us with lies. He's the father of lies. He's called just the liar. He distorts the truth. Satan's weapons are are lies, are false teachings, are false ideologies. And by the way, way more destructive than demon possession. Way more destructive than demon possession. More college students have walked away from the faith because of false ideologies of evolution and, and uh, postmodernism than some kind of demonization. 
false ideologies are why there has been riots on our streets in America. False teachings in the university system, critical theories. Mainland Christianity, the church, devastated from theological liberalism of the 18th and 19th century. It's why Europe is a godless place. Massive destruction by the devil. Twelve million Jews dead because of the false ideologies of Hitler. A hundred million people dead because of the false ideologies of Karl Marx and Marxism. Sixty million babies dead, ripped out of their mother's room, limb by limb, because of the false ideologies of the sexual revolution. Deceiving young ladies, if you've had an abortion here, there's grace. Sorry, there is grace, and God will forgive you. And if you ask for forgiveness, you're forgiven. And I'm sorry you were deceived. Calling babies fetuses, which is just Latin for a pre-born human baby. Why are we speaking Latin? Millions and millions dead because of false ideologies. And that's not even to mention the false religions of the world. Islam. Hinduism, Mormonism, all false religions, all false belief systems, all false ideologies leading people straight to hell. Satan would be happy if you're preoccupied with demon possession. He'd be happy if you're preoccupied with the occult so that you're ignorant of his most destructive work. Satan's weapons of mass destruction come from false ideologies, false arguments, and false teachings. I mean, that's why false teaching is such a big deal in, in Scripture, throughout all of Scripture. Right? Paul calls it ravages wolves. Just picture it. Right? A wolf in, a, in a, a pen of sheep. The carnage. That's what Paul calls false teaching. Listen, nowhere in the epistles does it talk about demon possession. It does in, in, in the Gospel and Acts. Every single New Testament book deals with false teaching. Every single New Testament book. The human mind is the battleground of spiritual warfare. Satan wants your mind. He wants to trick you with lies. He wants to distort the truth and confuse you. In fact, this is so important. I just want you to look at 2 Corinthians 10 verse 3. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians 10 verse 3. Second Corinthians 10, verse 3, it says this. For though we walk in the flesh, even though we're humans, we're flesh, though, though we walk in the flesh, we are not raging war against the flesh. We're not fighting against other humans. For the weapons of our warfare, right, that's the armor of God, are not of the flesh, in other words, not physical, but, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Well, what's a stronghold? He tells us, verse 5, look, we destroy arguments... And every lofty of opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And we take every thought captive to obey Christ. Spiritual warfare happens in the mind. It's taking thoughts captive. It's, it's taking lies and putting them out of your mind and, and dwelling on the truth. That's why being in the Word is so important. 
It's a war of ideas. It's a war of thoughts. It's a, it's a war against wrong thinking that leads to wrong action. Satan is after your mind, which we'll see next week. The mind and the heart are the same thing in Scripture. The heart and mind are, are one. Your choices, your thinking, and your desires are what the heart is. Your thinking is a part of your heart. Satan's after your heart. That's Satan's schemes. Our enemy is Satan and his army of demons. That's our enemy. His schemes are to lie to us, to distort truth, to disguise himself as an angel of life. In other words, to trick us, to get as close to the truth as possible, to pretend it's, it's Christian and then to lead us to destruction. Now I want to look at two examples of spiritual warfare. I've never been in war, and I hate to make this comparison because I know it's not even comparable, but the closest thing I think I've been to war is playing sports. Right, again, not comparable for anyone that's been in war in here. I'm sorry, it's a bad analogy to say that, but there is some similarities in how you approach an enemy or an opponent. One of the things we would do before we get ready for, for a basketball uh, game against another team when I played in college was we, we spent time studying them. And we would know everything about the team we were playing against. We'd know all their names, all their bench players. we know if they're right-handed, left-handed. we know if they like to drive right, if they like to drive left. If, if, if we, we would know if they like to shoot, pull up to the right, or go to the left if they spin. We just would study it all. We'd study their plays. And then after we did all that, we'd sit down and watch video of them. <laughs> We never played a team we didn't watch video of, or ever. And so I think it's important that we look at some examples of spiritual warfare. It's kind of looking at the video of how Satan attacks. And there's two examples I want to look at. The first one is is this attack by Satan, and, and the person getting attacked, fighting without the armor of God. Of course, they lose. The second example I want to look at is someone fighting with the armor of God. So let's start with warfare without the armor of God. Again, this is how not to fight. Turn to Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. We're in this part of Scripture a lot because it's such an important part of Scripture. And one of the importance of it is it tells us how Satan, it shows us how Satan likes to attack. This is spiritual warfare without the armor of God. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. It starts by saying, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord had made. We know that the serpent is Satan. Somehow he's embodied a snake. The New Testament tells us, makes that very clear. And he was more crafty. The Hebrew word for crafty here actually just means wise or smart. Wise or smart. Satan uses his intellect, in other words, his wisdom and his smarts to deceive, to lie. That's why I think crafty is a good translation because it gives that negative connotation again. The schemes of the devil. He's crafty. Again, that's why 1 Peter 5.8 says, be sober-minded. Why be sober-minded? Because the warfare is in your mind. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour In this narrative, it amazes me. I've studied this so many times, and we've gone over this passage so many times. I always find something new, and it hit me as I was studying it this time that Satan only speaks twice. 
corruption of the whole world. We live in a fallen world now. He speaks twice, and that happens. The first time he speaks, right, he questions the truth. He says to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Right? He knows the answer to this. He just asks a question. He's trying to bring doubt. He's trying to create doubt in Eve's mind. Remember, the battleground's the mind. Did God actually say? He knows the answer. God gave one restriction. Out of all the garden, out of all the trees, out, out of being in paradise in this perfect place, there's one tree, one tree they couldn't eat from. See, Eve knows the goodness of God. Look at verse 2. He says, And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat from the fruit of the trees in the garden. Any tree. She understands the goodness, right? We can eat of any tree, but then there's doubt. Look at verse 3. But. But. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. All of a sudden, Eve's focus is on the one thing she can't have the one tree. All the goodness of God, that's all she can think about. Satan is crafty. He hasn't even lied yet. He just asked a question. Second time Satan speaks, verse 4. And the serpent said to the women, you will not surely die. There's the lie. You will not die. Right? In Hebrew, there's this emphasis. That's why the word surely is in there. It's like you will for sure not die. This is a lie, right? But here's, here's the thing you need to realize. It's close to the truth. It's close to the truth. Right? They wouldn't die immediately physically when they ate the fruit. In fact, Adam lived to like 900-something, right? The lie was that they would die spiritually as soon as they sinned. And sin would bring death into creation. Now all living things will die. Satan is crafty. Listen, he is always, always close to the truth when he is trying to deceive a Christian. It may look Christian. It may look just. It may look righteous. But it leads to destruction. That's why just because something is Christian, I don't, I don't, I want to look into it a little bit. I want to make sure it's Christian. I want to make sure it's biblical before we use it. I'm always skeptical of things that come, especially the further they veer away from Scripture. He disguises himself as an angel of light, as an ambassador of truth. So here's the temptation. Again, he's still speaking in verse 5. For, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Here's the temptation. Eat the fruit. Eat the fruit. Be like God. Right? In other words, be your own God, determining for yourself right and wrong. You eat the fruit, and you'll be able to determine right and wrong for yourself. Be autonomous, in other words. Don't be connected to God. You don't need him. Let me just ask a question, because I think we need to see this. What is Satan attacking here? He's attacking Adam and Eve. We know that for sure. It's a spiritual warfare here. And we all know the end result, they lose, right? They don't have the armor of God. He's attacking truth. He questions it, and then he attacks it with a lie. We know that for sure. But, but more than anything, he is attacking the character of God. 
He is saying, eat from the fruit because God is holding something back. One tree. They ignore all the goodness of God. The fact that they were created. And they didn't decide one day, hey, you know what, I'm going to create myself. The fact that God breathed life into their lungs. They ignore all that. Give them, give them every tree. This perfect paradise is guarded. And, and there's this one tree. God is holding something back. This one tree. Satan's saying, he doesn't want what's best for you. He's holding something back. He doesn't love you. You know, that's why Adam and Eve's sin is so horrible. I've said this before. What's the action of Adam and Eve's sin? I picture it an apple. It doesn't say. It just says fruit, but let's pretend it's an apple. He, they pick an apple. Eve took a bite out of an apple. Oh, that's real horrible. It's not the action. It's the heart behind the action. It's the heart behind the action. Okay, Adam, is in their, Adam and Eve's sin were so horrible because it was distrust of God. The sin, the sin itself was an attack on the character of God. It was saying, you're not trustworthy. It was saying, you're not loving. It was saying, you're not good. In fact, I trust Satan over you. Listen, that's the lies of Satan. It's always questioning the character of God. Sin, this is why all sin, no matter how small the sin is, is horrible. Because all sin attacks the character of God. Disobedience says, you're not trustworthy, God. I'm going to do my own thing. Faith says, I trust you. I trust you. Therefore, I will obey. That's why faith always produces obedience. Always. You can't separate the two. If you truly trust God, if you truly have faith in him, you will obey what he's told you to do. Faith produces obedience. Look at verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, right? That's the desire of the flesh, that she was hungry, her flesh was crying out, and that it was a delight to the eye, that's the lust of the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, that's the pride of life. She took it. She took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked. They knew they were naked beforehand, but their nakedness didn't come with shame and guilt until after the sin. They knew they were naked in a, in a real way because they had shame and guilt. And I'm not talking about just the feeling of guilt. I'm talking about true guiltiness. The feeling was right. They were guilty. They're ashamed. Listen, the devil hates you. The devil hated Adam and Eve. Just think of the pain this one temptation cost. Death for every single human from that point on. Think of the pain it cost Eve. Eve's son murdered her other son. Can you imagine that as a mom? The devil hated Adam and Eve. Listen, the battle came. They lost. Adam and Eve did not stand firm. They didn't put on the armor of God. So now I want to look at warfare with the armor of God. Let's look at a story with the armor of God. If you would, turn with me to Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. 
Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. It says this, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Now I want to just point out the contrast between Adam and Eve and Jesus. Adam and Eve, tempted in paradise. Jesus, tempted in the desert, in the wilderness. Adam and Eve, tempted in, 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 with full stomachs, completely comfortable. Jesus tempted while being hungry, 40 days worth. Look at verse 2. And after 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. I think that's an understatement. Right? He was starving. Literally starving. His physical body was screaming for food. In his humanity, his physical body was, was weak. It's in this condition that we see three temptations from Satan, from the enemy. The first temptation is found in verse 3. It says this, and the tempter. Just stop and say that's his name. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Jesus, in his humanity, was starving and physically weak. Yet in his divinity, and that's the title Satan gives him, the Son of God, he could have easily changed anything to bread. These stones to bread, fine. Why was he hungry then? That's the question Satan is asking. Jesus in this moment was called by God the Father to live in his humanity and wait on him to provide. Wait on the Father to provide. He was to wait for his Father. So here's the temptation. Satan is saying, aren't you the Son of God? Why are you hungry? Why would your father abandon you and not feed you when you need food? Doesn't he love you? Don't you deserve better than this, Jesus? The devil is saying, God is not providing. Stop trusting him. Take matters into your own hand. You have the power. Look at verse 4. But he answered, it is written. What's that? Scripture. Jesus is using scripture. What, what is he using? He's using the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. He's using the belt of truth. He quotes Deuteronomy 8.3. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. This is amazing. Right? Jesus is saying, more necessary than bread after 40 days of not eating is obeying my Father. He is less concerned with eating and more concerned with obedience to God's Word. You know what that is? The breastplate of righteousness. The shield of faith. I trust my Father. This is hard. I'm hungry, but I trust my Father. That's faith. Second temptation, verse 5. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and, he, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. That's a 450-foot drop, just so you know. The temptation is this. Create a situation to prove God's love. Right, the first temptation, there was already a situation that was surrounding Jesus. He was hungry and, and the devil says, does God truly love you? The second situation is, hey, if God loves you, prove it. 
create a situation. Jump off this building. It's 450 foot. See if, he, see if he saves you on the way down. And I want you to pay attention to the craftiness of the devil. He says, okay, Scripture is your authority. Look at verse 6. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written. That should scare us. Satan quotes Scripture. Remember, he disguises himself as an angel of light, that he's on our team. He's an ambassador of truth. He's not. He'll quote Scripture. He'll use Scripture. Look what he says. He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear, bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. The devil's quoting Psalms 91, 11 through 12, but here's the important thing. He's misinterpreting it. The devil will use and has used misinterpreted scripture to cause massive damage. And we just look at the history of mankind, we can see that. Horrors done in the name of Christianity, in the names of obeying scripture, misinterpretations of scripture. Why, again, false teachings is such a big deal. Paul, again, calls it ravenous wolves. The devil will misinterpret Scripture to deceive people. Here's a super important, just a side note, super important hermeneutical principle. Again, that word hermeneutics is just a fancy word for the art and science of interpreting Scripture. It's how you should interpret Scripture so we don't get misinterpretations. A hermeneutical principle is this. Just think about it, and I've said it before. The meaning of Scripture is the Scripture. The meaning of Scripture is the Scripture. In other words, if you don't have the meaning of Scripture, when you're reading Scripture, if you have the wrong meaning, you don't have Scripture. The meaning of Scripture is the Scripture. If you need to think about that this afternoon, it's, it's kind of, it makes you think it's like a puzzle. Psalms 91, 11 through 12 refers to anyone that trusts God. The angels will lift such a person up in their hands like a nurse does a baby. The Psalms does not apply to people that sin or do unwise choices when those are involved. Listen, God is not promising that there won't be consequences to sin and unwise choices in that Psalm. There's consequences to sin and unwise choices. Even if you're a Christian this morning and all your sins have been covered by the, the blood of Jesus, your past sins, your present sins, and your future sins, they're covered in, in an internal eternal set, there's still earthly consequences to sin and unwise choices. Therefore, I think jumping off a 450-foot building is unwise. Psalm doesn't apply. Devil misinterprets scripture. The second temptation, again, is to create a situation to prove God's love. You know what? Humans do this all the time. Create unnecessary drama so people will come around them and say, oh, you're so good. We love you. They're just feeding into their own self-worth. Claiming they're victims when they're not. And making a big deal about it when they shouldn't. Not looking at the blessings that God has poured out on them. And don't get me wrong, if you've truly been victimized, if you've truly been hurt by something, that's hard. I'm not saying, I'm not just saying people like create it. People do it all the time to prove God's love. This is Jesus' response responds using the sword of the spirit. Verse 7, Jesus said to them, again it is written, you shall not put your Lord God to the test. 
In other words, you do not need to test God's love. Why? He's proven it. He's proven his love. Right? Each one of us, he's proven his love. The fact that you're alive, right? You didn't go one day, hey, you know what? I think I want to be born. I want to be created. You're created. I mean, just think about it. I've talked about this all the time, that, that you don't make your heart beat. Your body just takes care of itself in amazing ways. And beyond all that, Jesus sent his son to die on the cross for your sins. To front, to try to prove God's love through some other means. He's proven it. Jesus knew his father loved him. He didn't need to test it. We're not called to test God's love. We're called to have faith in God's love. A shield of faith. Jesus has faith that his father loves him. And so the temptation didn't work. Third temptation. Look at verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. What's the temptation here? Listen, the temptation here is a painless shortcut. The kingdoms of the world without the cross. That's what the devil is offering. I'll, I'll give you all of this, all the kingdoms of the world. That's what you've been promised. I'll give it to you without going to the cross. All you have to do is worship me. Satan's saying, I, I'll treat you better than your father. I won't make you go to the cross. Why should you have to wait for what's rightfully yours? Why should you, the God of the universe, be hungry and treated like this? You deserve better. Does God really even love you? Satan is saying, I'll treat you better. Just worship me. Of course, that's a lie. Satan doesn't have the authority to give all the kingdoms of the world. But here's another important lesson. Sin always promises a shortcut to joy. But it leads to destruction. Sin always promises a shortcut to joy, to pleasure, to happiness, and it always leads to destruction. God promises joy and satisfaction in the long run through obedience. And you know where that leads? Joy and satisfaction. Remember Hebrews 12, 2, my favorite verse. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, this is our example, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. He had faith that there was joy and obedience on the other side of the cross. Listen, obeying is not always easy. In fact, sometimes it's really hard. It's hard to trust God when you have hard circumstances in life. Obedience is not always easy, but it will always end in joy and satisfaction in the long run. Faith says, God, I know you are good. God, I know, I don't know why this is happening right now. I don't know why I'm tempted or, or want this. I, 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 but I know you want what's best for me, so I will obey. That's faith. And Jesus is our example. I just want you to listen to Philippians 2, 5. It says this, have this mind among yourselves. So where's the battle? In the mind. Paul is saying, get this in your mind. Have this mind among yourself, which is in, your, in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, in other words, he was God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. In other words, hold on to. 
but made himself nothing. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being hungry and thirsty, being found in human form, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Listen, that was not the easy way. But what happened? Therefore, verse 9, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. That means every kingdom on the face of the earth will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's real satisfying joy. On the other side of the cross, Jesus had faith in his Father, a breastplate of faith. Verse 10, Then Jesus said to him, to Satan, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall not worship the Lord your God, or you shall not worship... Um, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Right? What's that? The sword of the Spirit. Verse 11, Then the devil left him. Behold, angels came and were ministering to him. I just want the church to, to understand that, that the main strategy of the devil in all three of these temptations, in, in the temptation of Adam and Eve, in every single temptation that's ever come to mankind, the main strategy is the devil saying God is holding something back. You deserve better. Don't trust him. Right, that's the heart of every temptation. Adam and Eve didn't put on the armor of God and were devoured by Satan. Jesus put on the armor of God. And look at verse 11. Then the devil left him. The devil fled from him. Jesus withstood him. He resisted him and Satan fled. And I love this part. And behold, then angels came and were ministering to him. This is just my interpretation. It's not interpretation. It's my guess. I picture Jesus in like a lounge chair with like an angel with, and grapes feeding him. Like, that's not scripture. I just want to make that clear. It's my own imagination. Which leads us to the last point. And some of you, I'm glad no smell is coming through. The last point is very short. The review our game plan. Look at Ephesians 6, 13. It says this. Turn back to Ephesians 6.13. This is our game plan as Christians. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Listen, we're called to withstand. We're called to stand firm by taking up the whole armor of God, just like Jesus What's interesting is that word stand firm in Ephesians 6.13 is the same word used in James 4.7. Submit yourself then to God. Resist, same word, could be withstand the devil and he will flee from you. That's what happened with Jesus. He put on the armor of God, he stood firm, and the devil fled from him. There is a reality spiritual reality that's outside of us that we need to realize. And we need to understand that the lies of Satan is his primary weapon. One of the reasons we need to be in the Word so much, we need to be replacing our thoughts with truth, taking the lies and replacing them with truth. That is true spiritual warfare. Yes, there's all types of occults and 
And there is demon possession. That's a real thing. And actually, we'll talk about it a little bit as we go on. But that's not the weapons of mass destructions that Satan uses. Lies is what Satan uses. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father God, Lord, I thank you for this passage, Lord. I thank you for revealing the game plan of the enemy. We wouldn't even have known he was there if you didn't reveal that there is truly a, a, a angel of darkness, Satan, and all of his demons, Lord, that, that surround us, God. There's a battle going on that we would not know about unless you revealed it to us. I thank you for revealing the strategy of, they, uh, of the devil, Lord, and, and showing us how not to fight, and then showing us through your son how to fight, how to stand firm, how to put on the armor of God. And I also thank you that you promise if we stand with the armor of God, if we resist the devil, he will flee from us. Not by our own strength, by your strength, by your armor. God, help us to have faith in you, Lord. Protect our church from the schemes of the devil, Lord. They're rampant right now. False ideologies are everywhere. Help us to think clearly through things. Help us to train our, our children, Lord, in the truth. To use your word, sword of the spirit. To have faith in you because you're good. Help us to point our children to the goodness of you, Lord, so that, that of course we would obey you. Breastplate of righteousness, the gospel of peace, Lord. Let, it, let that be our, our armor. Just be with us as a church in your son's name. Amen.